welcome and thank you for joining us here on the Legal Technology Review Podcast, powered by the Cyber Advocate. As always, I'm your host, Brian Folk, civil litigator and author of the Cyber Advocate. Particularly excited today about our guest. We're going to be talking about big data and data visualization with Daniel Lewis. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. I actually went back and looked. It was just about a year ago that I, uh, in speaking with some of your sales guys, got a demo copy of Ravel Law to check out and end up talking to Corey Bray, I think your sales guy, quite a yeah. bit about uh, after I tested it and was able to write about it. And there's really nothing I can say other than that it was an entirely different way of researching legal case law than I've ever you know come across before. Yeah. The concept of data visualization, I think, is, is something that we're we're seeing a lot more of, obviously, with big data becoming smaller data, really. I mean, our ability to take large numbers, take detailed analysis, and compress them down into visual processes that just, you know, you couldn't do before is impressive. And I will say, at least from my experience, what you've been able to do with Ravel Law has been remarkable to date. But I kind of want to start off with what led you to decide that this is what you were, where you were headed. What problems did you see that you were trying to solve? Yeah. Well, thanks, Brian. You know, one of the things that led us to start Ravel and to develop the approaches that we have was that when I ended up in law school myself not so long ago, um, I discovered that the tools we were supposed to be using looked basically the same as they had when I'd seen them a decade plus earlier at my parents' firm. So I'd come from a family of lawyers. Both parents are attorneys and older brother's a lawyer. Now younger brother's a, a 2L. Um, somebody heard that and said it sounded like my family had a genetic defect. But, I was going to say masochism comes in the uh, comes in yeah, the cheese there. Yeah, exactly. Huh? But for better or worse, I think that's part of what what helped me um, get interested in this space, which was that legal technology had really fallen far behind what was going on everywhere else in the internet, and the legal world had changed a lot. So it wasn't it wasn't acceptable anymore. <laughs> the legal information had grown dramatically. Um, the practice of law had become way more digital than it had been 15 or 20 years ago, and yet most of the tools still looked pretty similar to when they had first been created. So I got interested in exploring what could you do with legal information that hadn't been done before, and how could you reimagine the research process. Um, so started looking at um, a range of ideas and speaking with professors in the computer science department at Stanford who were working on things like data visualization and data mining to learn about what was going on in their labs and some of the ideas that could be used and applied over in the legal space. And I'd also come from a, a background of playing baseball through college and had seen the revolution that had happened in baseball through the use of advanced statistics and, and data and analysis. I think we could just plug Moneyball here if you'd like. But, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> plug Moneyball. Um, and I think the analogy can be a little bit overused, but the piece of it that I really like is that in baseball, there had been this mindset that putting together teams, scouting talent was and should be based entirely on human instinct and experience. And you had scouts who spent their entire career looking at players and evaluating them. And this idea of how could you use data analysis as a piece of that was very revolutionary because it, uh, it made scouts nervous that their human experience was no longer going to be valued and it, that machines were going to take over their jobs. And that was the very first early phase of it. In the first couple of years, this big clash between the sort of data nerds and the old school scouts. 
But what's happened is that the battle's over. I mean, data analysis has changed the way that the game has, is played and, and the way that um, teams are put together. It's helped spot talent that would otherwise go unnoticed. It's helped evolve strategies of playing the game. But it has not replaced human experience. Instead, now the challenge for teams is figuring out the right balance and the right mix between human instinct and data analysis. And it's how can you use data analysis and new technology to produce new information, to produce new insights that can then inform a smart human decision maker with better information. There was an article I was reading recently discussing about the process of AI is that people are too afraid of AI taking over for humans when, in reality, every single time that AI has been successful, you have AI learning from people and then people learning from AI. You build on, you have to constantly build on processes. And it's what we've actually been doing as, well, a species for the most of our existence. The idea that throwing in this new way of looking at data is somehow foreign to the human experience is really pretty laughable. We've been building on this kind of stuff, every single piece of new technology, from actually carving something out of a stone all the way up to where we are now. It's all building on something like that. And I, I think it's, when we fear it, it's, we're more afraid that it's, it simply means we're going to have to get up and do something ourselves. Yeah, I, I think it's more about having better technology and tools as your co-pilot, helping you make better decisions, operate at a high, higher level, um, and get rid of some of the grunt work and some of the mundane tasks that can really suck the joy out of practice. So how did you end up focusing on research? So started looking at it from the perspective of what were people doing day in and day out in their first few years in practice. You know, you, you get exposed to research in law school and then it's one of the core things that you do in your first few years in practice at a firm. Um, and it's actually such a significant part. Folks at Debevoise did a survey and concluded that 35% of junior associate time was being spent on research. And if you combine that with the fact that at firms... I know not, I don't want to point to double voice specifically, but at most firms you have, it's not unusual for 80 to 90% of associates to leave after two or three years, even though they're making 160, 170, $180,000 a year. And so you combine that and you say, geez, why are people making so much money and yet so incredibly unhappy with their day-to-day jobs? And research is a third of that time. This is a really clear pain point, And I could experience that firsthand. And so that's why we wanted to focus on it. It was this tool, it was this application, it was this task that you needed to do day in and day out. It was kind of the, the Facebook of your legal practice, you know, it's that tool, that website that's going to be generally open most yep. of the time. So that's why we wanted to focus on it. Lexus and Westlaw spend a lot of money giving full, complete access to their systems to law students because they have a ton of research showing that whichever system you get used to is the one you stick with. Now, I had the funny one of when I was, my, Carol was closest to the Westlaw printer, and so that was what I used. It didn't make sense for me to go up a flight, so I got used to Westlaw, and then as soon as I started practice, the firm that I went to used Lexus, and then I moved from Winston-Salem to Charlotte, and after five years, and the firm that I'm at now has Westlaw again, and no matter how similar they are, the learning curve, even when you know exactly what you're doing, is remarkable between those yeah. you know, between those those two. But do you feel like that sort of the domination of the legal space by Lexus and Westlaw, particularly for when you're coming out of law school, that's what you're familiar with, do you think the domination by just those two companies has uh, slowed innovation in the in the research area? Yes. 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I think if you looked at any industry, if you had a duopoly of players, it's not healthy for innovation. Um, I think it's extremely rare to have uh, such a consolidated industry where only two major players are operating in it. Um, and I think, you know, for a time, they, they're sort of an, uh, success is their own enemy. And they've been so profitable, they've been so successful, really, um, that they've become these massive businesses that now have a really hard time innovating and that they don't have quite as much incentive in, as they might have had in the past to innovate. So I think what's happening now, actually, is you are seeing a, a host of new companies like ours springing up that are saying, look, we need to really go back to basics and focus on case research as a core problem. Um, West and Lexus have added a billion secondary sources um, all around case law. But the core of what most associates are doing most of the time, 80% of their research time is spent in case law and in primary law research. Um, and that, that space, that task has really gone neglected, we think. Um, so how can we go back to basics and really reinvent that process to make it better? What did you decide? Well, so we're trying to do it with a, a few different things. I think the, the idea behind most everything that we're doing is that the information that people are trying to research is generally um, public. It's generally non-proprietary. It's case law, it's primary law sources that are increasingly publicly available and can be found across a variety of different sources. And in that world, um, it's more of a commodity and attorneys will be able to access it from a number of different places. But what will really help them stand out are tools that help them find value from this material and insights and analysis on top of it. So I think we're kind of entering an age of um, what you might call asymmetric analytics. Nobody has asymmetric information anymore. They have the same information, but how can you use interfaces and analytics to really exploit this information in ways that give you a competitive advantage? And so that's what we're focused on, of building tools that help people sift through massive amounts of information to find things of particular value, understand why they're important, and give advice about how to use them most effectively. I've never heard anyone phrase it exactly that way, but it's a pitch that I can actually see definitely playing to the mindset of competitive litigators. It's, we're going to help you do this. We're going to help you do this better. And it's going to help you win. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny. You don't, I don't know if it's because of the, I almost consider it sort of like a, like they, they call a corporation a legal fiction. I kind of consider the idea of the law as a profession, as opposed to a business. I think the two can exist together, but as opposed to a business, I consider it to be kind of a, uh, a mental fiction. <laughs> the people who think that have kind of made it up. And this idea that you shouldn't necessarily advertise that it's going to help you win. <laughs> it reminds me of people that would suggest that what that really means is we're giving you something you shouldn't have. You know, yeah. we're, it's, this isn't steroids. This is extra batting practice. Yeah. I think it's definitely an interesting pitch. No, I mean, we're, we're trying to create tools that give the people who use us an unfair advantage. Um, hopefully that means it's leveling the playing field for people who are trying to compete against bigger folks. Um, but for bigger people who are trying to hold their, their natural advantages, it's going to create barriers that are even greater. So um, this, I think this is really an era where lawyers are in fierce competition to win new clients. Um, and 
in a fierce competition to differentiate how they provide services. And if they can do that with technology and demonstrate to clients how they are proficient and have access to tools that their competition doesn't and can give better advice about what that means for the client's case, um, that can and should be a differentiator. We're going to keep talking about the competitive advantage that data visualization and Ravel Law specifically can provide. You're listening to the Legal Technology Review podcast powered by the Cyber Advocate. Stick around. You're listening to Legal Technology Review on the Cyber Advocate. Don't forget to follow all the latest on tools and technology for legal service professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. All right, we're back with Daniel Lewis talking about Ravel Law and competitive advantage. The theory of competitive advantage versus the practice of competitive advantage. We've talked about the idea that you can benefit from using Ravel Law versus some of the traditional services. Let's talk about the actual. How does it happen? So I'm not making this stuff up. This is, you know, this is not a new idea that you can use data to formulate strategy and, and become more effective. So um, let me tell you a story from about 60 years ago. It's about Lyndon Johnson, um, who hopefully everybody knows, um, 36th president. He was running for Senate for the first time in Texas in 1948, and he'd given up his House seat. He was already a congressman. He'd given up his House seat to run, and he was caught up in this very fierce electoral battle where there were accusations of voter fraud. And Lyndon Johnson is a a competitive and ambitious person, as, as you know. And so they ended up in federal court and this judge issued an injunction keeping Johnson's name off of the ballot until the accusations of voter fraud could be cleared up. So he assembled this room of attorneys because the general election was only a few weeks away. And if his name was not on the ballot, he knew that he was not going to win as a write-in. So they needed to figure out how to get the injunction overturned and get his name on the ballot. None of these attorneys could figure out how to do it. So he called in a fancy pants attorney from D.C. who flew in, listened to what was going on. This was, you know, midnight. They'd been up for hours and hours and hours trying to figure out a strategy. This guy listened to all of the different viewpoints and said, look, there's really only one way that we have a shot of getting this this injunction overturned fast enough that your name goes on the ballot. And that is to try to lose as quickly as possible at the Fifth Circuit so that we can appeal to Hugo Black, the Supreme Court Justice who oversees the Fifth Circuit, who... You know, based on my experience, we'll view this as a federal state issue and rule that the federal courts had no business in a state election issue. And Johnson said, well, if that's our only shot, then we need to go for it. And so they sent a team of attorneys to New Orleans to read through every opinion written by a Fifth Circuit judge to try to find the judge who would most clearly rule against them. And after pouring through case after case after case, they came across a judge who had ruled on a fairly similar appeal very decisively. And then they crafted the worst argument that they could, (laughs) filed it and and appealed to that judge. And sure enough, he ruled against them within hours. They appealed to Hugo Black at the Supreme Court, who overturned the injunction, ruled in their favor. Johnson's name went on the ballot and he won the election. You know, years later, he ended up in the White House and... That fancy pants lawyer uh, was Abe Fortas. I had a feeling. Who he appointed to the Supreme Court. So, you know, that was data analytics 60 years ago. It was done by hand. It was done manually. But 
Imagine what you can do today with technology to recreate that and say, well, look, we can look through all of these judges' opinions and use technology, use machine learning and natural language processing to spot the patterns, to spot the language that they use, to spot their tendencies. You don't necessarily need an army of attorneys anymore. You still need an Abe Fortas type person to think about the strategy. But once you can think about the strategy, you can execute on it much more effectively and efficiently. I have to say, I heard about what was going on at, at Stanford prior to my initial review of uh, Revel Law, but I actually looked into it a, a lot more as part of my as part of my research. And would any of this have been possible without the Codex system program you got out there? Yeah, I mean, Codex is a, a unique. Um, and, and really interesting collaboration between the law school and the computer science department at Stanford. Um, it's not, it's hard to define. It's not an incubator. It's not a, a startup accelerator. It's more a community of people who are interested in legal technology who get together regularly to trade ideas and share resources and network and connect with interesting people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's one of the the connective tissues at a university like Stanford that has a lot of different resources um, to help bridge some of the gaps. And it's easy for law students and law schools to become pretty insular, I think. But when they have the ability to connect with, in our case, you know, we were able to connect with um, the computer science department and the school of design at Stanford and bring together these three different disciplines of law, and technology, and, and design to craft something that was um, brought a lot of different perspectives to the issue and helped us problem solve in, in some fairly new ways. Why did you focus on visualization as a way to solve the problems that you saw when you looked at the legal space? Yeah. I mean, for me, when I was doing research um, at school and for a firm during a summer and for a nonprofit while I was, while I was studying as a sort of extracurricular, um, we were doing research on topics that didn't have clear answers. They were, they were spaces where the black letter law had run out, which is oftentimes what lawyers are dealing with. They're dealing with issues where there is some ambiguity, there's not total clarity. If there was, you know, you might not need a lawyer. And so that, that kind of gray area required, in my mind, it didn't require necessarily visualization, but what it did require is figuring out how lots of different pieces of information fit together. So you were trying to figure out how 30 or 40 or 50 cases touched on your particular issue. There wasn't a clear, decisive answer one way or another. You needed to piece together lots of different frameworks. And visualization did turn out to be a really powerful tool to do that. If you're thinking about a typical Google search, um, maybe you are looking for just one answer, and it should be in those top three or top five results. If you're doing legal research, you're not necessarily looking for one right answer. You're looking for the 30 or 40 different things that need to be fit together. And so with visualization, you can see those relationships between cases. You can have um, new ways of spotlighting seminal cases that may be 30 or 40 years old and showing how they relate to the district court opinion that just came out last week. And that uh, has helped people both research more quickly and understand this is the lay of the landscape and now I can orient but it's also helped them discover needles in the haystack, those cases that are 60th or 70th in a traditional list that they just hadn't come across because nobody reads that far down in a traditional list. But it doesn't mean that those things are irrelevant. They should have been discovered and fit together 
Um, so it's about how can you create a process that gives more confidence that you understood everything that you needed to and were able, able to be thorough in dealing with it and really quick. I also want to point out there's probably some level of difficulty. I'm almost thinking of, you know, uh, the listeners of this podcast are going to, it's going to require a little cognitive dissonance to be able to listen to an audio podcast about exactly why visual yeah. uh, data is so incredibly important. Fortunately, one of the things that I do with all my podcasts is I pair them with a, a blog post which takes a little bit extra time, but I think actually makes them a lot more useful. And so for anyone listening, uh, you can check out the blog post. I'll, I will be sure to post several images to uh, reflect what he's talking about. But one of the things that I did want uh, to double back and ask you about was this whole idea of finding the needle in a haystack. What in your mind is the best way to demonstrate that to someone visually? So what we've what we like to show are use cases from attorneys who have called us or written us and told us about their experience. So, for example, we had a partner who called us up from a, a big Midwestern firm and said she had her team of associates doing research on Westlaw and Lexus, and they put together sort of the research package that they were going to use to write a brief. And she came into Ravel just to do some double checking, and within a couple searches, she had identified a recent case that had cited to some of the other major ones that her associates had found, but that they hadn't discovered. And this sort of uh, recent, relatively unknown case, um, nobody knows where it would have shown up in a traditional list of Westlaw or Lexis results. But with the visualization, she was able to discover it. It had really key, useful language for their side, and they incorporated it into their brief. And she said, look, I can't say that any one thing in particular helped us win, but I certainly would not have wanted to file a brief without having discovered that opinion. So it is, it's, um, as you said, it's really hard to describe the types of visualizations that we're doing at Ravel. A picture is worth a thousand words. Um, so I would encourage people to, to check it out and, and fool around with it themselves. But the thing that we had discovered in talking with um, neuroscience researchers, with people at Google, um, with people who have studied this sort of cognitive thing that you're talking about of how do you process information visually um, through your ears, <laughs> through your other senses. Um, and what everybody said was that um, visualization can create a much bigger pipeline of information to your brain. And you can process a lot more information than you can through plain text or through listening to something. Um, and so I think it's a really exciting, really powerful way for people to understand images, to understand stories, to be able to spot patterns. And I think there's also some value to be sure in what people are comfortable with, too. And one of the things that I, I will say that I was most impressed by your presentation of some of the most important information, which is the case text itself, you didn't stray from too many of the core formulas of how we read cases. You kept the, you, know, you can still technically look at the list if you really if you really want to of the cases. Yeah. But once you click into a list, you still have all the information that everyone expects to see uh, about the case right there, and then other excellent graphical representations on the side. And personally, I one of my favorites is the the graphical representation of when this case has been cited to over the past whatever. Because there was one example, I'm and I'm I'm blanking on it now because it was a year ago that we were talking about where. This case from 10 years ago had gotten nothing, nothing, nothing. Then all of a sudden, two years ago, someone discovered it. Whether it was a litigant specifically or a clerk or an actual judge, 
you know, sifting through cases while they were supposed to be listening to a trial. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, this case gained remarkable importance. And when you look to that time, you're able to actually look at, okay, what other cases became significant at that time? And it sort of helped you get this idea of a case's importance and not just a case, but a specific idea or a specific finding holding why and when it became important that you just don't get when you look at, you know, you're looking down your list and you see all the, yeah. the dates on these cases. What are the things that you're most proud of within your Ravel Law system right now? Yeah. So I think, you know, you touched on something that we have tried to be really careful about, which is bridging um, approaches and tools that people are already really comfortable with and giving the information that they expect and need to have and then ramping it up and giving it extra batting practice or, or putting it on steroids, whatever the analogy is you want to use. Um, so visualization is one of those things. Um, but like you mentioned, when you go in to read a case in Ravel, we've both stripped it down and really amped it up. So the text of the case is presented really cleanly. It's front and center. It's easy to read. And that's the core of why you're there to read that case. But what we've also done is present information about um, the analysis of that opinion to help you spot why, how, you know, when it's been cited, when it's maybe lost prominence, um, and to help you decipher the pieces of it that make it um, sort of more than the sum of its parts. So a case could be cited for a hundred different reasons. The procedural parts may be cited by cases that have nothing to do with the ones that are talking about its substantive issues. And so one of the things we built is a page-by-page -page analysis of each opinion where you can see and clearly separate um, the interpretations of a procedural issue from the sections that are dealing with substance. And what that allows you to do is find related cases really quickly. It allows you to see if um, the, a section you just came across that you find relevant has been used in a similar way by another opinion. You can see exact language of how other judges have interpreted it or criticized it or used it positively. And you can't do that in a traditional approach that's based on um, a headnote system because a headnote system is designed to take you to an abstracted representation of an issue and then connect you with a long list of cases that sort of share that abstract. And before you know it, you're five screens away from your original decision. Well, it's a subject of abstract, too. Yeah. I mean, it's the abstract that was written in the, uh, uh, in the office at Westlaw and LexisNexis. It's just not... You know, you're not actually getting uh, head notes written by the judges that interpreted it. Exactly. We're, we're talking with Daniel Lewis of Ravel Law. We're going to be talking about what is, in just a second here, one of the things that I was most impressed by when I saw, unfortunately I haven't been able to review it yet because it's fairly new, I'm going to be talking to Daniel about their new judicial analytics system. So uh, stick around. Join this podcast, head over to iTunes, look up the Legal Technology Review, and leave us a rating and review. While you're there, you can go ahead and subscribe to the Legal Technology Review podcast and never miss an episode or any of the great information on tools and technology for legal service professionals. All right, we're back with uh, Daniel Lewis of Ravel Law. So I've tried to, to advocate as much as possible this idea of knowledge management, but I've got an idea of knowledge management that too many people have told me that the definition that I use, and I always try to define it right at the start, the definition I use isn't really knowledge management to them because for some reason 
most of the knowledge management gurus or self-proclaimed knowledge management gurus, for some reason, think it's almost entirely about document automation. My personal view of knowledge management, especially for law firms, is to be able to catalog the experience of the firm, record it, save it, and use it. So I came up with a whole system of recording everything from, I want mediators, I want opposing uh, counsel, and I want judges. Because I want the firm, everyone in the firm, to be able to record their experiences so that we can track them. You've managed to do something that takes that concept. Talk to us about the uh, judicial analytics system. Yeah, so it, it is very much based on this idea of what can we learn about judges that helps inform how, how we can practice most effectively in front of them. And one of the things that we heard when we would go to visit firms and show them what we were doing is they'd say, well, can you tell us anything about this judge that we have? We Somebody would pull out their BlackBerry and say, hey, we just got an email that went around the firm saying we got a new case in front of Judge Smith. Who's ever practiced in front of him? What do we know? And those emails go around and maybe a couple people respond and maybe they don't. And the information is 100% anecdotal. Um, it's based on that person's handful of experiences. Um, or somebody's going to walk down the hall and knock on doors and see who's dealt with who. And those experiences are useful and they're valuable and they're informative, but they're only a small part of the picture. And so what we wanted to do... Assu assuming they're even accurate. Assuming they're even accurate. Um, and it may be accurate for one issue, but entirely uninformative to some other issue. I mean, these judges deal with lots of different cases and lots of different um, topics. So it's hard to get a representative picture just by going down the hallway. Well, I think there are studies even that have demonstrated the time of day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, time of day, the case that went before you, yeah, uh, can, can have a pretty big impact. But. Yeah, and so people obviously know this, and they're, and they're really hungry for information about how judges make decisions. And what we wanted to do is say, look, we actually have all these decisions in our system already. What can we learn from them? And now this is not so much about discovering um, a needle in the haystack case. It's about saying, let's put all this information together in one place. So we created a dashboard for each federal judge all the way down to the district court level where you can come in and see in one place all of the opinions they've written, everything that they've cited to, and then an analysis that highlights the other judges that they find most persuasive and the jurisdictions they look to both their own and outside of it, for, for case law. And from there, then you can start searching and refining. So you could say, I want to see how this judge has dealt with um, affirmative defenses and pleading standards. And you type that in, and you'll see a narrowed down set of cases that they've dealt with that topic, the things they've cited to, and analysis of, of trends from that. And so you can say, okay, well, here's a case that they cite to more than any other, and they cite to it a lot more than any other judge in their district. I want to figure out what this case says and why they're using it. So you can click on that case and we'll show you the exact sentence, the language that the judge has used when they've cited to that decision again and again. And that'll be a really clear depiction of, you know, affirmative defenses, um, pleading standard, can't be boilerplate, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so within just a couple steps, you can very quickly refine and understand how that judge has dealt with the topic um, in a way that you can't get by just regular anecdote or um, some things that would definitely escape human observation because you don't get to see the big picture. 
again, it's one of those you know, amazing things to think about. It's not as though this is new information. The data is all there. In fact, you know, I think it's one of the things you mentioned, the hard work's already been done. It's already been keyed into the system. You've already done all of your basic, all the analysis you would do for any other case that, that you've got in there. And so it's being able to take all this information and synthesize it down. Um, I think one of the, you know, one of the interesting ones is see what court they cite to the most because I think we've all had experience with that judge who just for whatever reason doesn't understand that, you know, here in North Carolina, uh, Your Honor, we're in the Fourth Circuit. Yeah. Uh, that's actually the precedent that, that's binding on us. Uh, why do you keep sending me to the Eighth Circuit? Yeah. Um, and and so it could be, you know, it's maybe that it's where that person went to school or it's maybe they clerked for a judge from that circuit. Um, those are the kinds of things you hear clerks talking about a lot, where they'll say, you know, when I showed up on day one, my judge handed me a binder, and in it were a set of cases and rules that they like to use, and a whitelist of judges from the circuit that I should cite to, which meant that everybody else was basically on a blacklist, and I wasn't supposed to use them. Um, and so you'll often have clerks say, well, when my judge hadn't dealt with an issue, the first place I would look was the person that they had clerked for. Maybe that person's based in the Seventh Circuit or the Eleventh or the Second, even though this judge is in the Ninth. So those sorts of tendencies are are time-consuming to track down. They're difficult to spot. But with some of the data analysis tools that we've been able to bring to bear on the problem, they've become much more apparent. I can tell you one thing. With, uh, with, any, with any judge, the very first thing that I would look up is how many of their cases have been uh, or how many of their rulings have been based in some way shape or form on their version of the local rules or their standing orders because i don't know if there's anything more important in litigation than making sure that you get a judge who's not already pissed off at you for ignoring uh ignoring the local rules or the standing yeah. orders so what's next for for you what's next for ravel law so we're growing really quickly um and adding a lot of new features. So one of the, the directions that we're going is, ex is expanding on judge analytics. We're building right now um, dashboards for state judges. And so that's a really exciting area where there's even sort of less knowledge right now about how they're making decisions. And we're going to be building out similar kinds of analytic dashboards for companies for firms, for attorneys, to help better map and understand these interrelationships. So a lawyer could look up a, a, their, their opponent and figure out, well, how many times have they appeared in front of this judge? How many times have they represented that client? How many times have they worked this kind of issue before? And how successful have they been? Um, so those are, are pretty exciting directions to be able to take the, the tools that we've been building and the foundations that we've been laying. I'll just, what I'll do is I'll, I'll build out my... Uh, anecdotal-based uh, firm, local firm experience one, and I'll just I'll just have it plugged into yours after you get all you yeah, get that you, all set up. It, <laughs> use it as a gold standard to figure out how how accurate we are. It, it, it's always interesting when you get the perspective of someone more fresh into the professions. I talk to enough of the people who have been practicing for twenty-five years about what they see. You know technology contributing to the practice of law. What other, what other uh, areas do you see technology improving the daily life for lawyers or at, le at the very least making it so that uh, we're not wasting our time? Yeah. No, I mean, I think if we can have an impact on the daily life of lawyers, we will have done something 
really valuable. If you look at the number of people who are applying to law school today, it's dramatically lower than at any point in the last 15 years. And I, I think I might have read that it's as low as it's ever been in the last 30 years. So you have a situation where people are, are not becoming lawyers anymore. They, not only is there maybe a financial reason and some of the most lucrative jobs are, are tighter than they have been before, but I think there's also a perception that being a lawyer is no longer fun. It's no longer uh, an enjoyable work experience. The work-life balance is tough and the actual day-to-day -day experience is tough. And if research is a big part of that, which it is, and we know it is, um, how can we reimagine that experience to make it faster, to make it more enjoyable, to make it less stressful, but to also make it more collaborative? And I think that touches a little bit on the knowledge management piece that you've talked about. Um, but it's helping people collaborate more effectively to work with their peers. Um, I think one aspect of legal practice that a lot of people find tough is that they have fancy offices, but they don't get to talk with people most of the day. It can be a pretty solitary, isolating job. Um, so my hope is that technology is going to help make lawyers uh, more effective and help them do certain things that are, are tiresome and irksome faster and help them connect with the attorneys around them and with the broader community um, more seamlessly in their day-to-day -day job. And I think those two things will help make the practice a lot, uh, hopefully significantly more enjoyable. So uh, we've discussed at length about how Westlaw and Lexis uh, have historically dominated the legal research front, although there's apparently a brand new study that was released um, I'm not sure how many years in a row this is, but I know it's more than one, that FastCase has been the number one app uh, that lawyers use. Uh, any uh, any uh, potential about seeing a, a Ravel Law mobile app? Yeah, so we actually just last month, we launched a mobile version of everything we're doing. So you don't even have to download an app. You can just go to RavelLaw.com and look up cases and read them and use our visualizations. So... Um, it's, it's pretty cool. I think the law is slowly becoming a bit more mobile. People are still doing most of their research on desktops, but um, the mobile experience of being in court and wanting to pull up a case or reading from a bus or a train or an airplane um, is increasingly happening. And I think it's one of the ways that technology will change the practice of law. You know, you've already seen how people have to be on on call all the time because they've been given their Blackberries or iPhones, but um, their ability to actually do work from those from those mobile devices um, should get better over time too. So we've we've been keeping an eye on making sure that everything that we're developing has a mobile element to it. Um, I wouldn't say it's a mobile first strategy. We're still doing sort of desktop first, but um, the tools that we've released and, and for mobile are pretty exciting. So I'd encourage people to try to check them out. Daniel Lewis, thank you for joining with us. We're going to have to check back in with you here in a, in a few months to see how, how some of the uh, advances. In the, I, I'm just excited about the judicial analytics. I think that's a, I think that's a great it's a great system, and the uh, that it hasn't happened yet is uh, somewhat disturbing to me. But that you're beating Westlaw and Lexus to it makes me happy. So <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. This has been the Legal Technology Review, powered by the Cyber Advocate. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.